Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Morning once again, and if we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, I'm Robbie Itterberg, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, this morning I want to begin with a premise that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that what we believe will affect how we live. In fact, what we believe about the future will deeply affect how we live today. Over the last few weeks, I've had this nagging pain in my knee. It at least it started out as a nagging pain, and then it became kind of a pinching and piercing pain, and then it developed into an aching, throbbing pain that was wrapping around the back of my knee. All the while, I continued to exercise and ride the bike as if nothing was going wrong. And finally, a couple days ago, I, you know, I get through in the towel, and I realized that, you know what, something seriously may be happening, because this is getting worse rather than be getting better. And so I changed what I was doing. I decided to give it a rest for a little while and see if I could recover. Right? We, we can either push against what we believe about the future, what could happen and those possibilities, or we can allow it to impact the way we live today. And the same is very much true about what we believe in terms of the end of history itself. What we believe about the end of all things will impact how we live today. As a matter of fact, we we started talking about this last week, the end of all things. And today, we're going to talk about it again, and, and as we get to the end of a sermon series that we've been in now for a number of weeks called What Matters in the End. It's actually been a series walking through Peter's second letter to the churches. And it was a letter he likely wrote from a Roman jail cell, very much aware that his own death was imminent. And so this letter reflects what Peter was most concerned about as he was facing the end of his own life, and he was concerned for the church in the end of history, the end of all things. And so last week we talked about the end of history, which is known as the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus will return, and when he comes, he will bring judgment on the earth. He will judge all that's ungodly. He will purify the earth. He will restore, actually, all things, heaven and earth. We talked about how people in Peter's day were starting to wonder if that day was actually going to come because it had been 30 plus years since Jesus had risen from the dead, since he had ascended into heaven, and so people were starting to feel like, yeah, he's not coming. But Peter wrote this letter to encourage the church to, to trust that the day is still coming. To trust that it's going to be a great, it will be a dreadful day, but it will be the day of the Lord. And so be patient, because God is being patient. As a matter of fact, last week we looked at the reality that he is patient with you, with me. As he said in chapter 3, verse 9, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, he's waiting for everyone who will turn to him to do so. And so today, we're going to talk about 
How are we to live in light of all this? What are we to do? What kind of people should we be? And so we're going to jump into 2 Peter chapter 3 as we read now the end of this letter together. If you want, you can follow along on the screen, but let's, let's listen as God speaks to us today. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray as we move into this word. Heavenly Father, as we come to this word and this time, invite your Holy Spirit to move among us. May you bless the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, and make us the people you intend us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we believe about the future will impact how we live today. This is Peter's claim and his basis in this passage when he said, since everything will be destroyed in this way, and then he asks the question, what kind of people ought you to be today? And this is a tough passage in a lot of ways, but it's a tough passage in English particularly and in this translation of English because the word destruction, when we think of destruction, we think of total annihilation. You might have a picture like in Star Wars where the Death Star at the end of New Hope just explodes, right? And we might get that image of destruction. But that image is not the image that's consistent with what the Bible says of what will happen in the end. It's not even the only meaning of the word destruction that Peter uses in this passage. The word he uses in Greek could also mean dissolved, could mean melted, it could mean revealed. In other words, Peter is making it very clear that the way things are now is not the way things will be. In that regard, it's going to be destroyed because it won't be like it is today. But it's going to not be annihilated, it's going to be purified, renewed, restored, and as a matter of fact, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, Peter says, where there's no longer actually any separation between heaven and earth. This is what the end of the book of Revelation tells us, that heaven and earth actually become 
one, that God is no longer distant from us in the end of days, but instead is right with us and we are among him. Our faith in those days will be sight, our eyes will behold the majesty of God and we will be his people and he will be our God. So Peter's saying since everything is going to be transformed in this mighty and dreadful way, what kind of people ought we to be today? And he answers the question. He tells us we're to live holy and godly lives. We're to make every effort to be pure, found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Peter's essentially saying, be who God made you to really be. God made you in his image, which means he made you to be like him, to be to reflect him, as Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that, that's quite a standard. And Peter's saying, make every effort to be like him. Not just to live however you want, which I think is why Peter adds the phrase at the end, to also make every effort to be at peace with him. In other words, stop living in rebellion against God. Stop living just the way you feel like, being driven by your desires, your instincts, your feelings, your impulses, but instead submit and surrender yourself to him, to the person he made you to be, to the lifestyle, to the choices, to the morals, to the standards, to the plans and purposes he has for your life. Submit and surrender day in and day out, no longer seeking your own way, but instead joyfully seeking his. That's what it looks like to be at peace with him. And so what kind of people ought you to be living holy and godly, pure, spotless lives? And he added this little phrase, as you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. Do you see that little phrase in there? Speed, it's coming. Like, what does that mean? Like, we don't even know when the day of the Lord is going to come. How could we possibly speed its coming? But we don't have to know when it comes to make it come faster. You know this, imagine this, if you were hunting for buried treasure, which I, I bet this time of year some of you are like that with your metal detector out on the beach, you don't have to raise your hands, but we, we see you. And you get to something and so you start digging perhaps and you don't have to actually know how deep it is to get there faster, just start digging faster. And you'll get there sooner. We don't have to know when the day of the Lord is going to come to make the day of the Lord come faster. But then you might be going, yeah, but how do we do that? Like, I, I know how to dig, but I don't have any idea how to move history along any faster. And actually, the most clear answer to the question is given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says it this way. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom of heaven will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So how can we speed on the day of the Lord, the end of history? Preach the gospel of Jesus' kingdom to all the nations. Then the end will come. If you don't like how things are going right now in the world, you can make it end faster. Proclaim that gospel to the, to the nations of the earth. Now, when he says nations, nations are not like nations how we understand nations. God's not like bound by the lines that we draw on a map and countries as we know them. Actually, the word here is the word ethne, 
where we get our word ethnic from. And we can start to then understand, okay, this is really talking about variety, the variety of peoples, of cultures, of languages that exist across the world. So we can speed on history by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and His kingdom, His rule, His reign, His love, that gospel when it's preached to all the families, the nations of the earth, the end will come in a way that they can hear and they can understand. And there's actually incredible work that's going on to try to do this intentionally and strategically, to try to get the gospel proclaimed to what are known as unreached people groups. And the unreached people groups are those those ethne, those families, those nations that have never heard the name of Jesus, who have no reference point for who Jesus is and what he's done. Estimates are today that there are over 7,000 unreached people groups, 7,000 families of the earth that have never heard the name of Jesus. I was part of actually one of these efforts. If you've been around, you may have heard some of the stories I've shared from my time as in the summer as I was a missionary in Siberia and Mongolia. I went through an organization called New Tribes missions, and the new tribes referred to new people groups where they were bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I was a part of a church plant among an unreached people group, trying to help them hear and understand the good news of God's love for them in Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to be in that kind of space, because you can't assume any shared knowledge, any background, any understanding of the Bible, of God. You start from nothing, And I share this for a couple of reasons. One is because I want you to know that there is a beautiful unity among Jesus' church across denominational lines trying to be intentional and strategic, a unified effort to bring the hope of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to all the families of the earth. I also share it because I want you to know you can be a part of it. Internationally, you could be a part of it. Or even locally, more and more you can be a part of it. More and more peoples moving to this country that have never heard the name of Jesus. More and more Americans born in this country that have never heard the name of Jesus. Every generation becomes further and further away from Jesus. And those that think they know What Jesus is all about also carry a lot of baggage and a lot of assumptions. And so it's for us to then reimagine, what does it mean to share the gospel, this good news of the kingdom of Jesus with the world? To share that incredible story that the God who created all things is also the God who came to earth, uniting himself to humanity, to enter into our suffering, to take on our sin, our shame, our failure, so that He would have a people not to destroy when the end of all things comes, but instead to love and to be in relationship with. This is a unique story among all the stories of the earth. And we can speed the day of the Lord by sharing that story broadly But as we work at this, Peter says, the Lord is patient. He's patient as he's wanting us to get on board with that work, 
because there are too many people who haven't heard. But he also says the Lord's patience means salvation. Salvation for whom? Salvation for all those who turn from their self-centered way of living and living as their own God, their own reference point, their own Savior, and all who turn instead towards God, trusting in Jesus as their Savior and their hope. And when we press that thinking, when we really start to press on it, okay, so the salvation is for who? For anyone who turns? Like, really, anyone? We often begin to push that and ask, you know, kind of those fantastical, made-up scenarios where we start thinking, well, what about the death row murderer who has a last-second profession of faith in Jesus right before he's executed? Even him? Yes. Even him. And we struggle, I think, with this idea because we struggle with the word that Peter uses when he says, what kind of people ought we to be. It's that word ought that we really get caught up on. Because when we hear that word ought, we start thinking immediately about all the things we should and shouldn't do, right? The good things, the bad things, the right things, the wrong things, right? We start thinking about these lists, and we go, okay, yeah, so it's, a, it's really about what we do and don't do. So a Christian should, ought to be kind, ought to be patient, ought to be gentle, ought to be humble, ought to be generous, right? And, and on that list is certainly a Christian ought not to be murdering people, right? That, that's on the list, don't we think? And so we get caught up on this because, well, that's not what we ought to do. But Peter is reminding us in this same breath that the end is coming. Judgment is coming. That's why you ought to be holy, blameless, and pure. But what we get caught up on is how does it actually happen that we become at peace with God and holy and blameless? Does it happen because you were a good person? Because I'm a good person? Does it happen because I've lived as I ought to live? A Christian isn't a Christian because he or she does what he or she ought to do. A Christian isn't a Christian because they figured out how to do what they're supposed to do all the time. As a matter of fact, a Christian is only a Christian when we recognize, embrace, and acknowledge the fact that I do not do what I ought to do and I cannot do what I ought to do. But instead, Jesus did what I was supposed to do and then offered his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice, as an offering, as a substitute in place of my life, my sin, and my failure. It's only when a Christian recognizes that that you can actually become a Christian. As a matter of fact, there are non-Christians who are more kind and more gentle and more patient and more generous than I am. And the list could keep going on. That doesn't make them a Christian either. That doesn't make them any better in the eyes of God either because we can do the right things for the wrong and the self-centered reasons. You can do the right things 
to actually avoid being in a relationship with God, to avoid having to surrender your will and your life. See, only a Christian realizes that I do not do what I ought to do. (laughs) And even the good things I do, I don't do them even for the right reason. I'm still self-centered. But Jesus has done what I ought to do and offered himself in my place. See, this is the ought that Peter's really getting at. That at the end of things, all will be dissolved, it will be melted, it will be transformed, it will be revealed. All the secret things in your life will come out. They're coming out in the open. The things you don't want other people to know about, the things that you're ashamed of having done, those things are coming out in the open. And on that day, when God's judgment comes, do I have anything to stand on? Do I really have any ground to feel like I'm going to make it through the judgment on my own? If I'm supposed to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, who among us could stand? Our only hope is that Jesus stood in our place on a cross. That I am not perfect. I don't do as I ought, but I am more loved than I can actually comprehend because the God of the universe would take that place for me. See, the ought of the gospel is not that I am perfect, but I am loved. And Peter is assuming because we don't do what we ought, we are humbled, but because we have experienced the profound love of God, then we will be changed. It will actually inspire loving obedience. We will do what we ought because we want to be that person. Have you ever been inspired to be like someone Have you ever had somebody in your life that goes out of their way to love and to bless you? Maybe they were incredibly generous, they were patient with you, helping you through a season, a a hard time where you were flat on your face or whatever it is. Is there not a part of you that wants to be like them? I think Peter is assuming the same. Do we not want to be like this God who would love this much? Who would bless this much? See, ought that Peter's talking about is a loving, joyful, grateful obedience, not a fearful or self-righteous obedience. But that's usually what we get into when we think of ought. I ought or else I ought, and because I do, look at me, you're a failure, but I'm pretty good. Right? You ought. Peter's going, how can you not live this way when you are loved this much? Which is why he says in the passage, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge. So the first day you heard about this profound message, and maybe if today's the first day, then I hope that it sinks from your head to your heart and transforms your soul because it changes everything to know that the God of the universe loves you this much. But the first day you actually began to grasp this incredible news, was that day not like the words of that hymn, Amazing Grace? The words that, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? Was it not sweet, amazing, awe-inspiring, wonder-inducing miracle? Was it not inspiring? And as much as that day was glorious and beautiful, Peter's saying, it's only the beginning. Continue to grow in your understanding of how big the grace of God is. See, the first day that I came to faith, man, it was beautiful. And there was such freedom and joy. 
But God in his grace didn't show me all of my sin all at the same time. (laughs) I think it just would have crushed me completely. But over time, over years, he continues to show me more and more of my sinfulness and my rebellion. He continues to show me that it was worse than I ever thought. That my sin, my refusal to submit at the very core level, that my fear of actually giving up control, all of those things, that it's, it was way worser, way worse than I thought. But he also is inviting me to see how as bad as it gets, the grace of Jesus Christ is bigger even than that. And as I grow in more of that, then I become not only free from the devastation, I also become more willing to give over, to surrender more, to experience more of his grace, to give more of myself, to give more of myself, to experience more of his love. And it's transforming. But not because I figured out how to live how I ought, but because his love changes me. And as we grow, we'll be changed, changed and transformed so that as he, as he finishes his entire letter with this, so that we can give him the glory now and forevermore. So to give him the glory is to take seriously who he is. To take seriously what he has done to recognize His beauty, His majesty, His radiance, to acknowledge His reign and His rule, to surrender more and more completely, to give Him the honor, the worship, the praise in every moment and every facet of our lives, to give Him the glory. And this is what life is all about. It's what life is all about. We have a, as Presbyterians, we have something called a book of confessions. And it's this series of documents that were written by the church in these critical points throughout history to try to articulate what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus now? And one of those documents is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And a catechism is this beautiful tool that's been used throughout history of of a series of questions and answers that's meant to help help us learn, right? Help us have questions and, and responses so that we can actually grasp more and more of the faith. And the very first question, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, at the heart of things, what is life really about? And is this not a question that we all carry with us? Like, have you ever wondered, man, is this really all there is? This is the question I think that drives so many of us wandering through life, wondering trying to figure out how are things going to finally make sense? What's going to fulfill me? How is life going to ultimately be satisfying? What happens after we die? All of these questions are wrapped up in this one question, what is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? What's our purpose? And the writers of that catechism answered it so beautifully and succinctly. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever to glorify Him, to every moment take seriously who He is, to take seriously what He has really done for us, and to in response live, to give Him the honor, the worship, and the praise. It's to give Him loving, joyful, grateful obedience, and it is to enjoy Him, to bask in His love for you, to grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But I wonder, how could we glorify Him more than participating in speeding along the day of the Lord? Than pro- by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because if glorifying Him is really about worshiping, honoring Him, right? It's great if I do that. It's awesome if we do that collectively as a body for us to do that. But there are so many other people, so many other ethnes, so many other nations, so many other families that don't know who He is, who don't know what He has done, who don't understand His profound love for them, who don't understand that life is not about your performance of doing what you ought to do, but instead receiving His gracious gift of love through His Son, Jesus Christ. We give Him the greatest glory by making Him known to those who don't know so that they too will turn around and give Him the glory. And God is patiently waiting for all that will come to come. To understand the gravity of their sin, but also to experience the enormity of His love. And you and I can speed on the day, that day of the Lord. You're a part of that. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? Who do you know that maybe have misunderstandings of what life is about, who still think it's about being good enough to get there in the end? It's about earning and achieving and living as you ought. Who do you know? And maybe you don't know yet how to share with them specifically what God has done, but I'd encourage you to begin to pray over them, to pray for them, to pray that God would open the doors for conversation, to pray that God would lead to questions and curiosity so that that can foster a beautiful exchange and sharing this gospel of the kingdom. Pray that He would give you courage. Pray that He would give you insight into what's going on in their life. You'll know how to speak a good word to them. Pray that God would break down the walls of hostility, the walls of rebellion, of self-centeredness. Pray that they will receive the gift of the good news of the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, the need is urgent. Because this is real. There are times where I'm just driving down the road and for years God has just pressed on me in these moments out of the blue reminding me, hey, this isn't a rehearsal. This isn't practice. This is real life and real life is going somewhere and there are people who do not know the hope of Jesus Christ. But we can be the people that point them to him and point them to the reality of what we're about to celebrate at this table, the profound love of a God who would take on our sin so that we could be loved and love him back. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you didn't turn your back on us, but instead the profound gospel says that we haven't lived as we ought. We can't, we won't, we don't. And yet, and yet you love us still so much that Jesus, who did live as he ought, took on our sin and our rebellion. Lord God, may that truth not just be something that rattles around in our head, but may it settle into our hearts and our souls, and may it inspire joyful, grateful, loving obedience where we will proclaim 
that profound hope we have in Jesus Christ to the nations of the earth. Lord, blow open doors of opportunity. Make us a people inspired by your love to go out with courage to proclaim this gospel that changes everything. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.